Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley, and I want to thank you for listening to my podcast. We start by offering our heartfelt condolences to the families of the eight people who lost their lives at the Travis Scott concert in Houston on Friday night. One of those killed was 14 years old. A truly, truly sad tragedy. An investigation is underway. Let's bring it right down front. The Democratic Party is a shambles, and the last elections prove it. Yes, there were Democrats that won in certain places, certainly in New York City and other places, but the party itself is a shambles. Consider this. In New Jersey, a truck driver who spent less than $2,500 running for office beat the second most powerful Democrat in the state. And the most powerful Democrat in the state almost lost the governorship. That is truly how bad it is. Their candidates up and down the political firmament got their heads handed to them with a few exceptions. And here's one thing most people will not take away from Tuesday's drubbing. It wasn't a moderate versus progressive divide. And certainly you're going to hear a lot of people talk about that. It wasn't that this time. Don't believe it? Look no further than New York's two Long Island counties, Nassau and Suffolk. Republicans virtually ran the table against moderate, centrist Democrats. Some folks will say it's a result of the culture wars, like in Virginia's governor race. Maybe, but I think the critical race theory and cancel culture, uh, trif- no, it's not a trifecta. It's uh, how best to put it. Uh, double-barreled aim at the Democrats. I think that took a backseat to vaccines and mandates and taxes. Vaccine mandates, that is, mask mandates, and of course, taxes, especially in a place like New Jersey. At the top of the list, though, is the awful inability of Democrats to convey what they're about to voters. In Virginia, while red areas got even more red, defections to the GOP came largely from white women. And the usual scapegoats when things go wrong for the Democrats, that is, black people, were having none of it this time. Yes, there were some slight slippages in some states and cities, but black turnout was relatively stable from last November's presidential election. And that was in the face of widespread black disappointment with the inability to pass legislation that directly benefited them. Now, I will say this. The infrastructure bill is now on its way to Joe Biden's desk. But what about the safety net and voting rights bills? And we talked about this in our last episode, that black voters might not be too happy about the voting rights bill being pushed to the back of the queue. Now, it looks as though The Congressional Black Caucus came to Speaker Nancy Pelosi's rescue and brokered a last-minute deal that got most but not all progressives to back the infrastructure bill in the face of widespread progressive opposition to passing it. Why would progressives say no to infrastructure? Because they wanted the social safety net bill passed at the same time. Or they wanted to make sure that it would not be cut to ribbons by moderate Democrats. I don't know whether that's going to happen or not. 
even on infrastructure. Six progressives in the House voted against it, and they're being pilloried by people in their own party. And, according to the New York Times, a commercial that targeted black Virginians may have resonated more than Democrats thought. It essentially said the Democratic Party only comes to black people around election time. Now, I've been hearing people say this for decades, never mind just one election. There are loads of people, and they're not all Republicans, who say that the Democrats only engage with black people when it comes time to vote. Then black people are, and part of this has to do with the fact that the black vote goes so heavily toward Democrats. And the Democrats have to acknowledge that when they want the vote. But when the balloting is done, it appears as though black concerns get pushed to the side. Progressive concerns get pushed to the side. And how are you going to argue with that given what just took place? Now, it may not be an effective recruiting tool for the GOP, but I submit that more than a few black folks do agree with this notion that the Democrats only come calling at election time. Now, they call it messaging, a term I don't much care for, but it has to do with putting your priorities out front and not overreacting to every culture war shibboleth the Republicans throw into the public discourse. Do most black voters know what's in the infrastructure bill? How about the social safety net bill? And here's another thing. Do most Democrats understand why two Democratic members of the United States Senate can hold 48 Democratic colleagues hostage? These things need to be made plain, and they need to be made plain soon. Next year's midterms could well see both houses of Congress fall into Republican hands. Keep in mind, redistricting is also ongoing, and GOP-led state legislatures will draw lines that will marginalize Democrats both black and white. Not a pretty picture. In the meantime, Democrats will beat themselves over the head about whether the party has gone too far left, whatever that means. It's a classic case of a party continually shooting itself in the foot. Now, I have to be honest, I really don't like the idea of pundits conducting autopsies on elections where they couldn't accurately predict the results ahead of time. There are, however, two trenchant views of this election that resonated with me when I read them. They don't take identical positions, but taken together, they represent the challenge the Democrats face. One is acclaimed playwright and educator Richard Wesley, whose political acumen is unquestioned. The other is former WBAI news director Paul Fisher. Taken together, they represent the best use of social media, that is, to provoke thought, which they do as well as any media outlet or politician spouting tired, fetid cliches about the vote last Tuesday. The real challenge is this, and I've said this before when Democrats have lost elections. You get up, you dust yourself off, and you get ready for the next political battle. Oh yeah, and win this time. Up next, remember that tragic botched drone strike in Afghanistan that killed 10 people, several of them children, 
Well, the military says there was no negligence involved. Wait, what? This is the intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to the intersection with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. Glad you're with us. Well, the Klieg lights and cameras that cover the disastrous U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan are long gone, and the Taliban is now running the country. Yet there was some unfinished business, that being an investigation into how a U.S. drone strike mistakenly killed 10 civilians, seven of them children, on August 29th. That strike was initially defended by the Pentagon as a, quote, righteous strike, hitting an operative of Islamic State driving a vehicle loaded with explosives. It was later that the Department of Defense was forced to admit the vehicle struck was that of a U.S. aid worker, an aid worker for a U.S.-backed nonprofit. Now we find that an investigation concluded that there was no criminal negligence on the part of the U.S. military, no violation of the rules of international warfare, and, as you might expect, no one was punished for this terrible miscalculation. If that's what you want to call it, and I call it worse than a miscalculation. Some have called it murder. I don't know if I'd go that far. But some have called it murder, no matter what the military says. We do know there are 10 people who are dead that shouldn't be. The net result will be a U.S. payment to their families and not a whole hell of a lot else. I don't pretend to know enough about how the military operates to pick out who is responsible or who should be punished for this. I do know that the military's report says there could be a level of accountability at the command level and, as the report says, and I'm not sure the report is being, you know, completely transparent here, quote, adverse action may be taken, unquote. Now, I also realize that this mistaken uh, strike that is took place not long after a suicide bombing that killed 13 American soldiers and 170 Afghans. I understand that part. All that being taken into account, the idea that there was no negligence sticks in my craw. The report hints at changes in the way drone strikes are allowed and the intelligence that must be necessary to allow them to happen. I still maintain that until the Pentagon can assure the American people that innocent lives will not be lost by someone's mistake, no matter whose mistake it is, drone strikes ought to be suspended. There's another aspect of this that really does bother me. When the strike was first reported, the DOD was quick to provide evidence of the quote, righteous strike. In light of subsequent events, did somebody just make all that up? The report says decision makers who okayed the strike had ample reason to believe they went after and hit the right target, except they were wrong, dead wrong. The head of the aid organization the driver of the car worked for, called the report deeply disappointing. I would agree with that. 
that the U.S. military would destroy an entire extended family, mislead the public, and then find no negligence boggles the mind. Imagine for a moment how Afghans must feel about this. They must think the American government does not, and the American military more importantly, does not value their lives. And when that happens, you drive people into the hands of organizations like Taliban, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and others. We should be able to do better. We must be able to do better. When we come back, the COP26 summit in Glasgow features politicians patting each other on the back, while people in the street have a very different take. Plus, a woman who thought she wouldn't go to jail on January 6th insurrection charges finds out a wee bit differently. This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. I have a friend, a lady I went to school with many, many years ago. In fact, we were elementary school classmates and just recently managed to get back in touch with each other after many, many years. Her name is Joan. Joan loves to paddle on the upper end of the Hudson River in New York, and the pictures she posts on social media are absolutely priceless. They show the beautiful colors of the trees along the river. This time of year, it's a symphony of colors that takes me back a long, long time. In looking at some of her latest pictures, something hit me on the head like a sledgehammer. If we are not careful about climate change, my generation, or maybe the one after mine, will see these beautiful trees and beautiful colors for the last time. Truth be told, it was the first time the potential effects of climate change was brought into stark reality for me. It's with those images in mind that I began to take a long look at the COP26 climate summit now going on in Glasgow, Scotland. Climate activists from around the world have joined the various world leaders at the summit. Of course, the activists are outside the actual summit. They're protesting. They're obstructing. They're making their voices heard. Their demands are quite clear. They want drastic action on climate change, and they want it now. For them, talking about doing something is no longer good enough, no longer sufficient. And I think they're right. We've talked about it before, not that long ago, actually, but my friend Joan's pictures made me realize this is an issue that needs to be talked about until there are concrete changes in the way people live their lives. Like not taking a plane from the summit to London when the train is available. Like not subsidizing big oil, not to the tune of a dime. Like not allowing fossil fuel adherents to control the narrative about carbon footprints and the like. Like not setting goals on climate change that ensure the politicians who set them will still be around to be held accountable if they're not met. Young people 
are calling out world leaders that are so busy patting each other on the back that they aren't inclined to listen to people like Greta Thunberg, who came to Glasgow, Glasgow, that is, by train, not by plane. And the current crop of statesmen shouldn't expect these voices to quiet down. If anything, they're going to get louder. They're no longer going to sit still for people telling them there's little or nothing individual people can do to clean up the environment. What's changing now is where these climate activists are coming from. Initially, uh, in terms of Greta Thunberg and others, they were coming from Europe, in many instances, Western Europe. People demanding change are now coming from Sub-Saharan Africa, Central and South America, places where global warming is directly affecting their lives. They don't want to hear a politician tell them to go to a movie. And we know who that was and we know who it was said to. Older people with some sense had better support these young people. There's a lot less time than we think to do something. I really hate to think that the pristine forests along the upper Hudson River in New York that Joan has documented so beautifully may someday soon be gone. Definitely not going to jail. Sorry, I have blonde hair and white skin. A great job, a great future, and I'm not going to jail. Maybe you remember who said that. Maybe you remember this woman. Her name is Jenna Ryan, and she was one of those insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. She was responding to a user on a Twitter thread. She was also dead wrong. After pleading guilty, to the relatively minor charge of demonstrating in a Capitol building, she was in fact sentenced to 60 days in jail. As far as I'm concerned, she got off easy. Somebody ought to have told her that publicly proclaiming skin privilege is old. Her time was a plea deal with federal prosecutors. A maximum would have been six months, which I believe she well deserved just for being stupid. I'd read before that some people in the Justice Department were not too happy and continue not to be too happy with some of the plea bargains offered January 6th defendants. Remember, these are people who are insurrectionists. Now, they're innocent until proven guilty, just like anybody else in the American justice system. But many of them, not all, but many of them left complete tracks of what they did and how they came together to try and overturn a constituted election. They admitted it. They made it sound like they were participating in a noble, patriotic cause. Although, I don't know how they came to that conclusion, but that's what some of them thought. Now, I don't know if this was a just sentence. I don't think it is. But, you know, that's just me. Apparently, she didn't necessarily get involved in any kind of violence once she got inside the Capitol. And she did get inside the Capitol. Now, if punishment is supposed to fit the crime, and if punishment is supposed to act as a deterrent, two months for participating in a coup against the government of the United States doesn't sound like much. Doesn't sound like much at all.
Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.